This is Pittsburgh Explainer from 90.5 WESA. Every week we help you catch up on the headlines from southwestern Pennsylvania. It's Friday, March 26th. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Liz Reed. Over the past week, demonstrations across the country have rallied around the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities following a shooting rampage in Georgia that left eight people, including six women of Asian descent, dead. WESA's Kylie Kaczynski covered one of the demonstrations in Pittsburgh and is here now to talk about it. Hi, Kylie. Hey, Liz. The rally you covered was on Wednesday in Oakland. Can you set the scene for us? Yeah, there were hundreds of people gathered first at Flagstaff Hill and then later at Shenley Plaza. The hosts of the demonstration, the East Coast Asian American Student Union, uh, better known as ICASU, and the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance Pittsburgh, had sign-making materials and snacks for people as they arrived. Uh, Speeches started just after four. There were more than two dozen other racial justice and labor groups that had participated in this. Um, Ceasefire PA was also there to speak about gun reform after several speeches at Flagstaff Hill, which is sort of across from Phipps Conservatory, for those who aren't familiar. Demonstrators marched down Shenley Drive to Shenley Plaza. It was a brief march uh, assisted by police blocking off roads as protesters made their way down the street. And then the uh, huge crowd held space in Shenley Plaza for about an hour or so before dispersing. So there were about a dozen speakers um, during this event. What were they calling for? Many speakers used Wednesday as an opportunity to share their stories about racism in the United States and the nuanced ways that it affects people of Asian descent and the idea that the term Asian is a political one. I don't have to tell you that there are many countries on the continent of Asia, but they've been you know, grouped into this one category by media, politicians and others. We have some sound here from Etha Cao. She's the owner of the restaurant The Hungry Cow, that's C-A-O, speaking about how she has struggled with her ethnicity growing up in Pennsylvania and how it's gotten worse and more fearsome since the coronavirus pandemic reached the U.S. And for the last year, that threat and fear has extended to stepping outside my home because as you can see, even with a mask on, I cannot hide the color of my skin. I cannot hide the shape of my eyes. There were also some calls for specifics. Uh, Ceasefire PA, as I mentioned, were they were there. They called for gun control measures that can specifically protect service industry, gig, and sex workers who often face dangerous working environments, and those are jobs often held by racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, protections for sex workers was a reoccurring theme. Police say the accused Atlanta gunman blamed a sex addiction for his rampage. Many people have denounced that explanation as an excuse for racist violence. That sentiment was shared by members of the Sex Workers Outreach Project. Lena Chen is a member of that group and a Chinese-American. Many of our traumas have been triggered, and there is something revolutionary in demanding rest and demanding care, demanding pause, demanding that we take care of ourselves in a system that always privileges productivity above human lives. So you mentioned there's been an increase in crimes targeting members of this community since the pandemic started. And, you know, I can imagine that the impact of that has only been compounded by the isolation that we've all been feeling. So given those circumstances, how did organizers and speakers respond to such a show of support? Michael Wynn, the director of advocacy with ICASU, said that that showing of support and showing of strength was the primary goal for Wednesday's action. And based on the crowd sizes at all of these recent demonstrations, I'd say that that solidarity has been clearly displayed. Etha Cal also spoke to this in her speech. She thanked allies for showing up during a time when it's needed, although risky. You know, the, the pandemic is still raging on, but people put aside their concerns about that to come together and support the AAPI community. Maybe it's worth mentioning that Sandra Oh was there on Saturday. You know, she's a famous actor 
actress recognized for roles in Grey's Anatomy and Killing Eve. I know that got a lot of social media buzz and excited a lot of people. She's, you know, a hero to many. What have the crowds looked like at these demonstrations? Like, who's there? It's been overwhelmingly young people, but diverse in almost every other way. I saw a lot of college-age people carrying signs and following organizers down the street. A few people I spoke with said Wednesday was their first action, and I know people told our colleague Bill O'Driscoll that on Saturday that was their first action. So it seems that there's been a group newly activated by this tragedy. But I also saw quite a few familiar faces from the Black activist community here in Pittsburgh. Black Young and Educated co-founder Nick Anglin spoke at Wednesday's action. Several other members of that organization were also present to listen. And some independent Black activists were definitely there on Saturday as well. Kylie, thanks for your reporting. Thanks, Liz. It's time for a quick break. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Ayers, the local host of All Things Considered here at 90.5 WESA. You know, the last year has been a turbulent, sometimes scary, oftentimes lonely one. And a lot in our world has changed. But I'd like to think that WESA is not. In fact, I'd like to think that this station has doubled down on what it does best. The pandemic, racial justice protests, an election, a new administration— All of these events have had reverberations ranging from the local to the global. And WESA and NPR have been here with you the entire time, providing you the information that you need to navigate it all. The only reason we've been able to do it, though, is with financial support from listeners like yourself. Your contribution, at whatever level you see fit, pays for the nonprofit journalism that you've come to rely on every day. So please help us keep doing the work that keeps you informed. Support Pittsburgh's NPR news station at WESA.FM, and thanks. And we're back. Over the last year, the state has approved billions of dollars in unemployment benefits to Pennsylvanians who lost work during the pandemic. But tens of thousands of people are still struggling to get help. WESA's Kate Giamarisi is here to talk about what's going on. Hi, Kate. Hi, how are you? Tell me about some of the people that you talked to. What are they going through and what's getting in the way of them getting unemployment benefits? Liz, I spoke with several people, but one in particular is featured prominently in my story, and that was John Good. He is someone who is owed more than $20,000 in unemployment. And, you know, because of being so many months without income, he is in pretty dire straits. He has had to move out of where he was living, and he's moved in with a family member. He has almost lost his car. He, you know, spoke about borrowing money off of basically all his family and friends. He spoke about the hardship of, you know, not really being able to give his children the Christmas that they would have wanted. He's, he's really had a terrible time of it. And so what's happening when he calls? What does he hear? When he calls and when most people that I've spoken to call, they just hear a constant busy signal. And I spoke with a number of people who described calling hundreds of times a day. And just it's a constant. You just keep hitting redial and it's a constant busy signal. And this particular gentleman who was featured in my story, Mr. Good, the few times he has gotten through he, the person on the other end of the phone has not been able to help him. He was told people, you know, a supervisor will call you back. And it just never happened. So let's use Mr. Good as an example. Why, why is his particular situation so complicated? Why can't he get a straight answer? I don't know. I suspect it has to do with the fact that he, he worked for two days last September or August and then was laid off again. 
He then was laid off September, October, a bunch of November, went back to work, worked a little bit November, December, and then was laid off again. I I suspect that that is part of the problem here, that he was on and off working. For, For whatever reason, he can't get through to get whoever he needs to to push the right buttons. I think it's understandable that the state initially wasn't prepared for the enormous influx of people filing for unemployment after the initial shutdowns of last spring. But it's been a year. Why is this still a problem? You know, officials at the Department of Labor and Industry would say that they were dealing with a pretty much an unprecedented crisis, and they they had to stand up multiple new programs because of the CARES Act and other federal legislation that they had to create multiple new programs in the last year that would cover people who were never covered by unemployment before, like through the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. So they are dealing with something that is enormous in its scope. The state has pledged to hire more people, but those individuals probably won't be able to be answering calls until June. You really have to give someone a lot of training to be able to do this. And this goes to the other problem that Mr. Good has experienced, that the times when he has been able to talk to someone, that person has been unable to help him. There's also the issue of our state has extremely outdated technology to deal with processing unemployment claims. They have been trying to upgrade it for quite some time. They were sort of about to do that before the pandemic hit, and they have delayed it because of the incredible volume of people claiming unemployment right now. But that's that's another sort of obstacle to processing these payments in a timely way. I can't imagine this is a problem only in Pennsylvania. Do you know how we stack up in comparison to other states? Yes. An expert that I spoke with said, you know, in terms of our payment timeliness, we're about average, although... We are below average in terms of like the eligibility determinations, and that is kind of, again, a bottleneck point here. Unfortunately, it is pretty typical for states to have outdated unemployment technology. Is there any resolution here? Will things get better and and when? Well, so the state has said that they will hire up to a thousand new workers to answer the phones. So I, I would hope that that could help relieve some of the bottleneck. I would add, though, that the state has said there are more than 40,000 people who have these sort of like unresolved claims like this, where the case needs a claims examiner. And that, that's a lot. Kate, thanks for, for telling us what you know. Thank you. It's time for another break. Stay with us. The Confluence goes beyond the headlines to introduce you to innovators and difference makers in the community and to engage in conversations about issues impacting our region. From education to social justice to government accountability. Join us for The Confluence where the news comes together Monday through Thursday mornings at 9 on 90.5 WESA. The Wolf administration this week shared plans to power half of the state government's electricity with solar energy. Officials say it's the largest commitment by any state government in the country. State Impact Pennsylvania's Rachel McDevitt is here to explain. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Liz. Where will the energy come from and and what kind of impact will this have? So the power is going to come from seven new solar fields in six counties, mostly in central Pennsylvania. The projects should generate 191 megawatts of solar energy, which the Wolf administration says will supply about half of the state government's electricity. 
Analysts say those projects will nearly double how much solar power is already produced statewide right now. And in terms of a greenhouse gas emissions impact, the power switch is equal to taking about 34,000 cars off the road. Wow. So so there's obvious environmental benefits here. Is this a good decision economically speaking? Solar has never been cheaper. Now, I'll note that this is a 15-year agreement, which is less than others that you hear about. That's because at this point, solar is falling so fast that you don't want to be locked into a price that could be higher than what we're going to see in 15 years. So the administration didn't give me a total dollar amount for the projected savings, but the state's fixed price for solar will average around five cents per kilowatt hour under the agreement. A spokesman said the state's electricity costs will be cheaper than the last 10-year average for a traditional electricity supply. Now, for some context, the state government's total utility budget last year was $24 million. That's all utilities, though, not just electricity. Man, I thought my electric bill was high. (laughs) Yeah, no, you don't want to compare yourself to the state government. So in terms of jobs, they are promising 400 new jobs, though those are going to be temporary construction jobs. The project developer, which is LightSource BP, says permanent on-site jobs will include a modest operations and maintenance staff, and they're actually going to employ some of the local farmers who are leasing their land to uh, graze sheep in between the solar panels. Pennsylvania Republicans have yet to take any substantive action on climate change. Did Governor Wolf get any support from GOP lawmakers on this plan? Republicans were pretty silent on this announcement. I reached out for comment from House and Senate Republican leaders, and they just didn't respond. But the Wolf administration doesn't need their approval for this. A spokesman said the power purchase agreement was handled using the same procurement guidelines used to purchase all of their utilities, which does not require legislative authorization. This is just another example of Governor Wolf trying to go it alone with climate action and doing things that are within his power. You know, he's trying to join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative through the executive branch, through regulation. And this is something that's within his control that he doesn't need the legislature to sign off on. The state's switch to solar wouldn't happen until 2023, which is after Wolf leaves office. Is there any reason to think that this deal could get yanked by a conservative administration? Are there provisions in place to prevent that scenario, or is it too early to tell? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen the contract, but it is possible there could be a penalty for breaking it. If a conservative administration would take over and then argue the deal is actually not cost effective, I could see them trying to do something. But though Republicans in the legislature have so far been unwilling to address climate change, they don't actually seem to be opposed to solar power generally. Some are actually sponsoring legislation that would encourage more solar, you know, so they can see the value in using a cheap energy source. Rachel, thanks so much for chatting. Thank you. That's Pittsburgh Explainer for this week. Our show is produced by Katie Blackley and edited by Lucy Perkins. You can find all of our news coverage at our website, WESA.FM, and of course on the air at 90.5 WESA. I'm your host, Liz Reed. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week.